We've had an incredible day so far. Hopefully you've learned a whole lot. We kicked off the morning with Arisa Stancil giving us a strong word about being stigma busters and we're excited to hear from her again this afternoon. So we help me welcome back to the stage, Miss Larissa Stancil. I'm back. I feel like I'm an MC up here with this handheld mic. <laughs> oh, how great has this been so far? <laughs> Top notch, 100%. Um, let me click this side. One thing I wanna ob observe, an observation I wanna make is that my laptop's not working right now, I don't know why. There we go. Um, yes, you can say, aw. Aw, I know, he's so cute. I wish he was still that cute. Now he's still pretty cute. Um, but I do wanna say one thing starting off. One observation I've made is this theme, and it's a theme of shame. It's like we have this cloud that it's not okay to be human. It's not okay to say how we really feel, that somehow we're supposed to have it all together. And I think there's even more pressure when we do identify as a Christian and we have hope in Christ. So I am so beyond thrilled that Fraser is doing this so that we can have permission to be human. Christ died for us in our imperfection right? Not because we were good enough. So that leads into my next topic, no more chasing normal. So in 1993, I gave birth to this cute little guy right here. And by the time he was four years old, he was diagnosed with autism. He is now 30 and it's been quite a journey. So in 1998, so the year after he was diagnosed, I had a local hospital, Helen Keller Hospital, approached me and said, if you would be willing to lead a support group, we'll provide a facility, refreshments, and childcare. I was like, really? Can't believe a hospital's gonna do that, but they did. And within a year, we had 150 families that all had kids on the spectrum that uh, we joined together. So I got a lot of experience in getting to know parents through that process. In 2005, I started volunteering for NAMI. And I know we've got some NAMI people here today. I became, thank y'all are awesome. Hats off to NAMI. I became a parent volunteer. I did that for a couple of years and you know, worked with parents that had some adult kids with mental illness. Um, sometimes children, but it was a wider swath of not normal. In 2006, I entered the graduate program and decided to go back to school for my master's in mental health counseling. And so 2007, a year in, um, I was offered a position as a graduate assistant in the Office of Disability Support Services. So in that capacity, I worked with a myriad 
of college-age students that had various disabilities. So God seemed to really be stacking up a lot of people he sent my way and a lot of experiences. So in 2008, I was well into grad school. And I, my son at this point was 13. And his, our life looked nothing like normal, nothing. And the people I went to school with, the people I worked with, no one knew. I didn't talk about it. I didn't know how to talk about what I was feeling. So I decided, I'm here. I'm gonna focus my research because there's got to be a model out there, some kind of grief model or something that explains what I know I'm living through. So I started digging. I would like to tell you that I found this wonderful model, but I didn't. I did find some things by a social worker named Olshansky in the 1950s who talked about episodic grief that he had observed in parents. And there's a grief model in the 1990s called chronic sorrow that you can find in the nursing field. But all of these things were fragments, but they still didn't explain what I was going through. And they were not written for parents. They were tucked away in academic literature. And at some point I thought, you know, it's probably not gonna help me much, but I'm not okay with that. Because there's got to be something to put into words to help other parents. So in 2011, after years of research, I don't know why this is not working, but it's not. Sorry, y'all. I don't know why this slide's not working. Well, there it is. Luckily, I don't have a lot of slides to show you on this one. Um, but in 2011, I developed a grief model and had it copyrighted. And the model is called Atypical Cyclic Grief. And my journey with my son was very atypical. And so is the grief. Because there's this thing called normal. Now, I know. You hear it, I hear it. Normal's just a setting on the dryer. There is no normal, right? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Look it up. You can find it in Merriam-Webster. Did you know if you look up the definition of normal, it literally says free of mental and physical defect, free of disability? That's right. Because you, if you met my son today, um, you would love him. He's awesome. He's amazing. He is literally my heart and soul but you would not call him normal. You would identify him as an individual with special needs, right? We do have a normal. In our society, everything's geared towards it. The diagnosis that he got, I became a crazy person. I was determined that I was gonna help him get better. We were gonna beat this thing. And I became so hyper-focused you know, I'm Enneagram 8 too. Yeah, yes, I, 
yeah, no boundaries. I was out of control. You know, everything was about helping my son get better. But in the meantime, I was grappling with these really strong emotions. And so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about atypical cyclic grief because it can help parents immensely who have lost normal. You know, we have this thing that happens in our brains, in our minds called a schema that develops. It develops when we're young and it's just kind of the scripting. We have this loose idea that we were born, we grow up, we graduate high school, maybe we go to college, maybe we don't, we go to work, we leave home, we get married, we have children, or maybe you, I don't know, you go serve on a mission field in Africa, I'm not sure, but you leave home and, and you function kind of normally, right? So this is not about whether or not you conform to society's norms. It's about the inability to conform. My son's 30 and he still lives with us and he will the rest of our lives. And we're good with that. But would anyone in this room call that normal? We wouldn't. We wouldn't think of that as normal. And so it's very important that we recognize that there's this grief that can happen over the living. Because when things derail and we don't know what to expect, we lost the script, we're kind of just floating out there and we don't know what that means. We feel grief for our children because what does that mean for them? What does life look like when it's different? When they can't play with their friends normally, when they can't engage. And so we have denial and denial, yeah, that's in all grief, granted. But this is different. Denial has dangers. Number one, you know, depending on the disability, um, many disabilities can be less visible. Autism is one of them, um, mental illness, extreme ADHD or behavioral challenges. You look at them and they don't look. You can't see anything, right? And so it may take longer for diagnosis to happen because how many of y'all have had children or have toddlers or nieces, nephews? And we know kids all go through these picky eating stages. They don't like anything. You know, my son only ate Pop-Tarts for like a year, I think. And I thought I was the worst mom in the world. But then all these other moms would say, well, my child does that too. And so even though it was kind of a red flag, but it also could be explained away. And kids develop, they ebb and flow. And so it's easy to see this splintering that happens. And so it's just understanding, if, if, you've, if you've met parents that maybe their child, you look at them and you think, hmm, I wonder if something's wrong. Or maybe you know something's wrong. And then you get frustrated because they're not doing something about it. It's important that you understand what denial looks like, that it's different and it can be explained. And maybe you can extend a little more grace um, in their direction. I wanna tell you about Nicole. Because as a professional, whether you're in the mental health field or whether you're a pastor, doesn't matter, someone in leadership. When I first presented this model in 2011 in Children's Harbor, and I was approached by Nicole, she was the mother of an older adult with autism, and she said, I want you to tell my story, because you're gonna be telling this a lot to a lot of people. And she said, when my son was young, 
I went for counseling. And I went to a Christian psychiatrist who told me that my son's condition was a result of my sin. And she said, I lived for years in shame. And even though I got to a place, I realized that can't be true. That just can't be right. And she talked to someone who told her that is absolutely not right. But she said the power of the professional's words, whether that's a mental health therapist, a mentor, or a pastor, holds a lot of authority. So I'm saying that to you to be mindful, for all of us to be mindful. So let's move on to anger. Um, you know, anger in, in atypical cyclic grief is really more related to the idea of feeling slighted. It's just not how it was supposed to turn out. You know, when, when my son was really young, oof, oof, taking him to the pediatrician's office. I mean, I needed an army to do it because he would fight and have meltdowns and it was really hard. And then I'd go in the lobby and I'd see all these perfect little kids. And these moms kind of giving me some sideways glances like, mm, if that were my kid. How many times have y'all said that and had to eat those words? But I felt, I felt judged and I couldn't help it and he couldn't help it. And so that would make you feel angry. Like it's just not fair. Guilt. This is the only type of grief that I'm aware of that you actually feel guilty because you grieve. I felt guilty for grieving. I felt like it made me a bad mom. Like somehow I should love my child just like he is, and I did, right? But grieving over that, just it felt wrong. So I didn't wanna tell anybody because I didn't know how to put it into words. Parents will feel, I've done years of research, and I'm gonna show you five pages worth of resources at the end of this. But there was some articles, professional articles that I found on guilt and some of the literature suggests that a mother will feel guilt over a sense of causation. Did I do something in pregnancy? Did I not eat enough greens? You know, did, did I, whatever it is that we, that we put on ourselves. And, and fathers would feel more of a sense of guilt over their inability to protect the family because mom's struggling, the child's struggling, and they don't know what to do. And so guilt leads to, especially internalized guilt. So you have all these emotions going on and then you decide you've gotta figure out some way to make it better, right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to make it better. So you can either become over-dedicated or over-protective. What do you think I was? Both. I fell into the both category. On, on a side note, one of my best friends in the whole world is here today. And we have this, this great Pyrenees that's wandered up to our house a year ago, starving to death. I fed it, my husband's like, why are you feeding that dog? That dog's gonna stay. I'm like, but the dog's starving. So I start feeding this dog. Won't even, get, won't even come near us. Now it hops on our couch. Still won't let us pet him, right? So my husband's given treats out to all of our dogs. And I'm like, well, did you, did you give Buddy one? 
And he's like, why are you always worried about Buddy? I'm like, I'm Buddy's advocate. My friend says, you're everybody's advocate. I'm like, well, that's kind of true, I guess. But you know, if you think about guilt and how it impacts parenting, so I'm gonna be honest and be real with you. I was so over-dedicated and so hyper-focused to the exclusion of other people, other, my husband, other family members, and you don't mean to do this, it just happens. And so what happens is marriages can break down. Other siblings can feel left out. And no one means to do this. Let me, let me put you in my shoes just for a few minutes. Who in this room has ever had a sick child? Just sick, the flu, anything, that's right. So imagine if your child was sick, but really sick and had to go to the hospital. Are you gonna be like, well, good luck. I'm going to work. No, you're gonna be there. But what if that child is there for two weeks? Three months? Five years? What does that look like, right? So that's why we have to help families and help parents talk through and get rid of these feelings of guilt. Emotional conflict in my book that some of you have bought, and I've written a book that contains this grief model, um, and it's written to help parents uh, work through this. But I titled this chapter, Battlefield in My Homeland, because that is really what it can feel like. The things people say, the challenging behaviors, and it's hard, it's really hard. And then you have these conflicting um, emotions. You can have joy and be filled with love, but also filled with grief all at the same time. When my son turned five, um, and I was plugged into a lot of families, a lot of parents, and when he turned five years old, they had already warned me, don't, don't do birthday parties. A lot of times kids won't show up and it's gonna be hurtful. And so I'm an eight, Enneagram eight, so I decided I'm doing it anyway. I'm having the party. So we had this little skate party and he, he was in a preschool class, 16 little preschoolers. And when I tell you all 16 showed up, all 16 were there. And not only were all 16 there, but all 16, when it came time to <laughs> unwrap the presents. He had little helpers that were anxiously ready to, because he wasn't gonna unwrap them. He didn't even really care that much. But every package that was unwrapped, a little horse marched out. I think there might've been one zebra, but still, all these horses, package after package. His preschool teacher looks at me and we shared a glance because we got it. But the other parents in the room were like, what? Every day when my son arrived at school, there was a little wooden horse. And if other kids were there before him, they would run and get it for him. And he held on to that little wooden horse all day long. So all of those preschool children thought he loves horses. So they all bought him horses, which was wonderful. And I saw the most beautiful picture of love, acceptance and Christ-like embracing of someone who was different. But I also looked and saw my son who was oblivious 
to what was going on. So it was this mixed bag of joy and love and some grief. And that is okay for us to say that, right? You know, people will say things like, and I have to tell y'all this. Shortly after my son was um, diagnosed, a good friend of mine said to me, I'm really proud of how hard you're working and all the things you're doing for Jacob. And I don't know what I would do if that was my son. But I've been blessed with two healthy children. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. So what I heard, and she's right, but what do you think I heard? I wasn't blessed, right? And, and so I had these little places, these little steps that every encounter sometimes was eating away at me spiritually too, right? Because it was hard. I heard, um, you know, I love the panel. And there's this idea that hope, hope survives and lives in this place of rescue. But sometimes rescue isn't gonna come in this life. And so the hope can't be in a hope that God's gonna change our circumstance. Because sometimes what's gonna happen is God's gonna change us, right, in our circumstance. And when we're talking about disability and lifelong challenging changes, that's the hope they've gotta learn to lean on, okay. Western society, you know, this impacts our ability um, to really be, um, I guess, to talk about how we feel without fear of shame. And what I mean by that is we, as a society, we fear and we shy away from things that make us uncomfortable. Y'all agree with me on that, that that's true? You've seen it, I've seen it, I've felt it, I've lived it. And what that means is that we focus on, the media does this, all the triumphs, all the good. And that's good, we need to do that, but not to the exclusion of the mom or the dad who doesn't know what to do because their child is beating their head on the floor and can't talk to them, right? It's, it's okay for them to feel some grief and to be confused and feel overwhelmed with that. It's all right for them to voice that. We can have the good and the bad, but it doesn't mean it makes it all bad, but it doesn't have to make it all good. God is in the middle of our pain. He doesn't show up after our pain, right? It's learning to find him even in the middle. When someone dies, what do y'all do? Grave. What do we do as a society when someone dies? Love on them. How do we love on them? We visit them. We take them food. We take them a casserole, right? Did you know when children are diagnosed with disabilities, have you ever taken someone a casserole for that? Nope, you've never done that. And you know why? It's because in our society, there's, there's no prescribed ritual 
There's no, so there's no rally response. And so what happens is individuals become more isolated because they don't know how. They don't know how to, to do what I'm doing right now, which is stand up here and talk to all of you and be real about what it feels like to walk the journey. But you know, as an advocate, I will spend the rest of my years hopefully doing this because I, I want young moms, young dads, everyone to feel validated and seen and heard. God sees them and as a faith community, we need to see them and we need to come alongside them, right? We need to make sure there's places in our churches for them. Yes, yes, I'm preaching I think a little bit. I've been accused of that a time or two. Um, but as we know, isolation um, in any type of grief will lead us to a place of depression eventually. And you know, blame and shame, low public awareness, uh, when, when your life becomes something that revolves around therapy. We weren't playing soccer. We weren't playing t-ball. We were going from one therapy to the next. And so my ability to stand around the water cooler at work and talk about the normal things parents talk about became super challenging. So what did I do? Hmm, I'll just go over here. Because I don't know how to join in that. So people lose connectedness with the society in which they live because they don't know what else to do. I think I met Mother Teresa incarnate, I really do. I was in Walmart, this was actually before diagnosis, and every time, do y'all remember back in the day when Walmart had the big bins of uh, those T.Y. stuffed animal beanie baby things? Y'all remember those? So my son always wanted the same beanie baby every time we went to Walmart. And it was a horse. And at first it was easy. Okay, here's the horse. We're gonna go do our stuff. Until they started running out of horses. And so you could find me bottom up in the bin digging for a horse. Because I knew if I didn't, it was gonna be the meltdown to end all meltdowns. Well, that changed to cozy coupe cars. Do y'all know what a cozy coupe car is? They're little tykes, plastic car, you know. They're not cheap and they take up a lot of space. So I did not have the room in my home for a fleet of cozy coupe cars. So we're at Walmart, he wants the cozy coupe car and he has turned into, it's like the exorcist. Like I think his head's doing 360. He can't even tell anybody his name, right? So at this point, he can't even tell him I'm his mom. I could be kidnapping him. And it is just like, I'm starting to see employees circle me. I'm like, oh no, this is terrible. What am I gonna do? And up comes Mother Teresa. I think she was probably close to 80. And she comes up to me and she says, dear, is there anything I can get for him? <laughs> and I'm like, no. He wants a cozy coupe car. She's like, I'll buy it. I'm like, no, that's not the point. You can't buy it. And then she says, it will be all right, dear. My daughter had one of those and he grew out of it. It'll be okay. And I'm like, okay. And I grabbed him up, 
fled Walmart, forget groceries. I just wanna get, I just wanna escape at that point. And so all of those situations caused people to just, they wanted to stay home. It's easier to stay home because it's too hard, it's too challenging. And they get depressed. Now here's where this atypical cyclic grief really goes in a different direction. Because where there is life, there is hope. And so when your children are young, you don't know what they're going to be like when they're 20 or when they're 30. And so you're in this constant state of chasing normal because that's the litmus test. If we can get them close to normal, they're gonna be okay. They can lead a normal life, right? So that's the goal. So that's the push. You just keep pushing them and pushing them and pushing them. And parents are doing all these things to push, push. So then you have, when someone dies, something final has happened, agreed? And the grief is difficult and you go through stages of grief and you're back and forth, but nothing is going to bring them back to life except Jesus and I don't think that happens very often anymore, right? They are gone. But when there is the loss of normal, the death of a dream, a disability has been diagnosed, nothing final has happened. It looks final on the surface, but it's not. Because when people grow, they gain skills, they regress, they ebb and flow, it's, okay, oh good, we're almost there. Oh no, this is happening. So grief is like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down, because psychologically you have nowhere to land and you don't know what to do with that. So when there's a, a, a progression and they're doing really well, you're gonna feel a renewed sense of hope. Yay, we've arrived, we've gotten there. But guess what? Along comes an unmet milestone. Mine happened when my son turned 16. We'd been dealing with autism for 12 years. You would have thought I, I knew what I was doing by then, right? Mm -mm. He turned 16 and I'll never forget this day. I pulled in the parking lot of his high school with him in the riding shotgun. And as I looked around, I saw all of these kids that we'd known for years that were in elementary school with him and they were driving into the parking lot. And the reality of that moment was like a punch in the gut. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. So the goal of this grief model is to help parents learn how to get off of this yo-yo, this emotional roller coaster. We've gotta to learn to redefine normal. So it's not about acceptance, it's about redefining. Everyone has a normal, but not everyone has the normal. Do y'all agree with that? That's right. So we've gotta learn what does normal look like for you and how do we make that good? And we can make it good. And you know how I know that? Because I know people that have and ours is good. We've made ours good. You know, I wanna, I wanna spend a little time, if I have a little time, yeah. On psychological pitfalls. We live in a day and age now, you know, gosh, when my son was diagnosed 26 years ago, I'm dating myself, I was still going to the library. Yes, the library, and reading everything that I could. Nowadays, 
We have the information highway. We have social media. But you know what that also means? We've got the comparison trap right in front of our face. Every day, every minute we're on it. And so what you're gonna see is these times where before you would have these interchanges people would withdraw from, now it's 24-7. Guess what? Normal is not perfect. Do y'all hear me? I'm gonna say that again. Normal is not perfect. That doesn't mean that if you don't have normal, that you don't have different challenges. And sometimes it's really tough. And one thing I will never, ever, ever do is I will never get up on this stage and tell someone who can't leave their home because they have children with behaviors that are so challenging and they don't have childcare and they feel overwhelmed. I'm never gonna tell that person, well, just have hope. No, they need help. And as a society, we've gotta figure out how to make that better. We've gotta figure out how to help people and be Jesus in the skin. I heard somebody say that earlier, right? And maybe as a faith community, that's something we can begin to do a better job at. Frazier is leading the way. We've got to avoid projecting, teaching parents that just because you feel this for them, doesn't mean they feel it. That was a lesson I had to learn. Like I saw all the losses my son wasn't gonna have, which meant I was grieving for him, but he wasn't grieving them. He was tickled pink to be, you know, watching Blue's Clues when he was 10. He didn't care, right? And even now, he's a single guy at 30, and he doesn't mind that he's single. He kind of likes hanging out with me and his dad most of the time. I don't know, I think he thinks we're kind of boring. But just focusing on the beauty of your normal and making it normal. There was a lady, Emily Pearl Kingsley, who wrote a poem that was famous called Welcome to Holland. How many in here has heard that poem ever? Mm -hmm. And so what she was putting into words is kind of what, what I'm sharing, but she did it in the form of a poem which is, imagine that you've planned a trip to Italy. You got all the tour guides, you've learned some language, you've saved all your money to pay for this trip, and you are so excited. So you hop on the plane, you take off, and when the plane lands, you hear, welcome to Holland. And you think, Holland? I'm not supposed to be in Holland, I'm supposed to be in Italy. And you, you get off the plane and you're walking around and, and you're lost, you don't have the tour guides. You don't know what you're looking forward to. You have no idea what to do. And then you wake up and you look around and you're hearing all your friends that are talking about Italy and how wonderful it is. And so all of a sudden you start thinking about everything you missed. But if we do that, we will never ever be able to see the beauty in Holland. Holland has Rembrandt, Holland has windmills. There, there's beauty in Holland. My son, you had to do this old talk thing last year. And um, this talk that I did, I point out the fact that we live in a society that is hyper 
I don't know, we've all lost our minds at, at sometimes, I think. But he is, he, there's one thing he will never do, and that is he will never judge you. Because see, that's not in him. He just loves people. You know what, he embodies more of Christ than I ever will. And I had to learn that lesson. And we've, we've, we still have to work through some things and sometimes he grates on my last nerves and sometimes I grate on his last nerves. But we've gotta look at the spiritual success versus worldly success. I had to learn to redefine that. How does the world define success? Tell me, talk to me. How is success defined in our society? That's right. How is success defined from a kingdom perspective? <laughs> That's right. Love, purity, kindness, don't judge, right? Don't seek after money, seek after God. Anyone who knows Jacob, he was voted the most likely on Facebook to pray. Not kidding. You know why? He prays, I don't know how many times a day. He calls people I haven't talked to in months and he's praying with them because I hear them, right? God moves everywhere all the time and in everything. We will never have the normal, but we have a normal, and it's good, and our hope is set in Jesus Christ, because our hope is not in what we get in this life. We've had to learn how to make that good, but I've learned that there are things my son does, because you know what it says in the Word of God? Those who are the least among us are what? Ooh, I get to see a slice of that. But it's okay if we're grieving sometimes. It's okay to feel sad. And, and we've gotta embrace each other and be open and help parents work through that and, and have a deeper understanding of what really matters in life. We don't devalue people based on their performance. We value people just like Jesus did, because they're people, because we're human. I'm gonna tell you this, um, what, how much time do I have? Do I have five minutes? I can't, no, do I need to wrap up? Okay, sorry, I'm gonna close, we'll, we'll do that another time. Y'all have been very, very um, patient and listening. I hope you enjoyed seeing the model. It's included in the book. I would highly recommend it if you're an educator, if you're a parent, if you know anybody that has a child that has lost normal, whether it's through addiction, whether it's through mental illness or any, to, to utilize it as a resource. Thank you so much.